Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It's good to be with you this morning. We have good news in the gospel this morning, and we have good news that Vera Bentley Condrition was born last night. Matei and Bridget have a new member of their family, little Vera Bentley, so we're excited for them. Congratulations to them. If you don't see them here, that is why. You can clap for that. Yeah, you can clap for that. It's good, good to hear. And, and I was just reminded this morning as I was sharing that, that wonderful news with people. Uh, you know, as dark as the world seems to be, and it is dark, God, God continually reminds us of his goodness when we see these babies born, when we see new life come to the world, you know what that is? That is God testifying to us that he is still God and he is still bringing new life and he's still accomplishing salvation for people. This, this is a good reminder to us that God is still God and things are still under his control and that God is going to bring salvation to all through the woman we find, and that's where we're at this morning in Genesis chapter Three, Genesis chapter 3, if you would uh, stand with me, I invite you to stand please. Turn to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 8. We're going to start in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 3 and read all the way down through verse number 24. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 8, all the way down through verse 24. Please follow along as I read. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, 
Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, I want to ask you a question to begin with, and it has to do with how you view the world. How do you view the world? What is your world view? That's a catchy term in apologetics. People talk about your world view, how it is that you understand the world and what happens in the world. What is your worldview? And is your worldview distinctly Christian? Is your worldview distinctly Christian? There's a lot of people that call themselves Christians, but their worldview is not Christian. What is a distinctly Christian worldview? A distinctly Christian worldview begins... With Genesis 1 through 3. Genesis 1, which we've looked at, we spent a couple of weeks in. Genesis 1 explains, gives an explanation for how things came to be. Genesis 1 is the explanation for how things came to be. Why something instead of nothing? You ever ask yourself that question? What is the purpose of the world? Why why does everything exist? Genesis 1 tells you why something instead of nothing. Is that where you go to answer that question? That's what a distinctly Christian worldview is. Genesis 2 tells us who man is, who man is intended to be, and what man's place is in the world. Genesis 1 explains how things came to be. Why something instead of nothing. Genesis 2 tells us who we are and who God made us to be, what our role is in the world. And Genesis 3 explains to us why things are the way they are. How do you explain what I mentioned earlier, the darkness that is in the world? How do you understand evil? How do you understand death? How do you understand the reason for why things are the way they are. What's your explanation? A distinctly Christian worldview believes Genesis 1 is the explanation for why things are or, or how things came to be. Genesis 2 is the explanation for who man is and what man's role is in the world. And Genesis 3 is the explanation for why things are the way they are. Revelation 21 and 22, at the end of the the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22 tells us where everything is headed. And between those two bookends, between Genesis 1 through 3 and Revelation 21 and 22, Genesis 4 through Revelation 20 reveals to us God in his glory. God and his glory accomplished in his salvation and judgment. That is the story of Scripture. God's salvation, his redemption through judgment. And it's all for his glory. 
Do you have a distinctly Christian worldview this morning? Is that how you understand the world? When you think about your, your own existence, when you think about your family, the world, purpose and meaning and all that, do you define all of that? Do you, do you, do you define your life in the world through Genesis 1 through 3, through the Bible's lens? Genesis chapter 3 is where we are. Last week, we looked at verse 1 through 8. We considered the entrance of sin into the world. We witnessed the origin of sin, the serpent, the voice, the opposing voice to God's voice. God had spoken, and now there's an opposing voice, another voice that slithers its way into the garden, the unprotected garden. Adam was given to protect. He does not protect. And this slithering voice has an audience with a woman who is left vulnerable by the failure of Adam, vulnerable to the devices, the craftiness of the serpent. And with slippery words, he calls into question, the serpent, this other voice, calls into question the goodness of God and the truth, the clarity, the authority of his word. We see where sin begins. We also see in Genesis 3, 1 through 8, where each one of us falls. We find here in Genesis 3 our own guilt, our own doubt of God's goodness, our own questioning of his word. This is our condition. This is our operating principle. We operate out of a distrust for God, a doubt of his word. That's how we operate. Genesis 3 then explains to us why we are the way we are. Not just everything in the world, but we ourselves. Explains to us why we are the way we are, why we think the way we think. Explains to us the nature of our sin and lays on each one of us our own guilt. Because of our sin, the wrath of God, this is Romans chapter 1, tells us the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by our unrighteousness we suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to us because of everything he has made. His his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we are without excuse. For although we know God, we do not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but become futile in our thinking. Our foolish hearts are darkened. Thinking ourselves wise, we become fools. This is our state. We all really like to think of ourselves as wise, intelligent people. But in in fact, we are futile in our thinking, foolish in our thinking, darkened in our thinking. And this, then, Genesis 3 gives us the definition of sin. We didn't really give a 
clear definition last week of sin. We talked a lot about sin, but didn't define it. I hope you picked up last week that sin is not first behavioral. Sin is not first a behavior. We often think about sin just as a behavior, something we do. But sin is not first behavioral. Sin is first, at the root, a heart's disposition. Again, a distrust of God and his goodness, a doubting of God's word, a covetousness. Again, because God is not good, God is not giving us what we need, and, and so our hearts are, are confirmed in covetousness, always looking about for what will satisfy, not running to God for our satisfaction, but to something else. Our heart's disposition is what makes us sinful, so, so what I'm saying is we are not sinners, very important, we are not sinners because of the bad things we do. No, it's the other way around. We do the bad things we do because we are sinners. The bad things we do, don't, it, that's not what makes us a sinner. We do those bad things because we are sinners. Very important. Our behavior then is what proves our heart condition. It's the evidence if we were standing in a courtroom, the evidence is what is brought out against us. The, our sins, our behaviors, is what brings the evidence. We are, we are confirmed. We are guilty. And our sins prove it. There's a lot of people that try to clean up the bad things that they do. They try to clean up the external. But they never address the heart's condition. They think of themselves as pretty good people. I don't do that many bad things. But they never address the, the root of the issue. What is sin? Well, it's first a heart's disposition that produces sins. John Piper, John Piper defines sin this way. I love this definition. You're not going to get it all. It's online. You can find this definition. It's been used many times before, but listen to this definition. It's wonderful. What is sin? Sin is the glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. This is sin. And in this definition, we find every single one of us. This is our condition. This is our state. This is our operating principle. Genesis 3 explains to us what sin does. 
It explains to us. It has explanatory power for the entire world and for our own lives. If you want to understand yourself, why do you do the things that you do? Why does the world look the way it looks? Why, why, why are there wars everywhere we look? You want to understand all of that? Look to Genesis 3. First, number one, we see the explanatory power of Genesis 3 in that it tells us, it shows us, it explains to us that sin brings separation from God. Sin brings separation from God. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It says that God came to walk in the cool of the day in the midst of the garden. That term walking is used other places in the Old Testament to simply describe God's presence in the midst of the people. His presence in the tabernacle, Deuteronomy 23.14, Leviticus 26.12, and 2 Samuel 7, 6 and 7, talks about God walking in the midst of his people there in the tabernacle, in the midst of his people, his presence. This signals the parallel between the Garden of Eden, I've talked about that a couple of times, the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle or temple that God gives to Israel. God's plan, God's intention is to walk in the midst of his people, to, to live with them in their midst, to dwell with them. And this is what he seeks to provide in the tabernacle. He tries to bring his people back to the Edenic reality. What, what a complete transformation here we find in verse 8 of chapter 3 from chapter 2.25. Look at chapter 2.25. This is at the end of God's creation of man and woman. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. A more complete transformation from this to verse 8 cannot be imagined. The trees that God had given to Adam and Eve to enjoy are now used to try and cover their shame. For they know that they are naked. Notice, notice what God does when he comes into the garden. God first inquires. He asks, where are you? This is significant. God has not changed who he is. God has not changed. God has not moved. Man has changed. Man has moved. Remember those old bench seats, right? Those old bench seats in your pickup truck? They don't do that anymore. I don't know why they don't do that anymore. But you used to drive around in your pickup truck and your, your girl would sit next to you, right? And then they, that, that same couple gets married. And years later, right, the wife is no longer sitting right next to her husband. She's sitting on the other side. And she says... Why have things changed? We used to sit next to each other. And the husband replies, well, the steering wheel hasn't moved, right? You're the one that's moved, not me. I've been here all along. A silly illustration. I do think bench seats ought to come back. They're wonderful. 
But God has not moved. God has stayed the same. He does not change. Man has moved. Man has gone away from God. The language here of Adam, where are you? Where, where are you, Adam? This, this does not mean that God somehow lost Adam or that God misplaced Adam. God doesn't know everything. This is accommodation language. God wants us to see something here. The relationship that man once enjoyed with God has changed. And now man hides from God. This is important. This is really important. Man is not seeking after God. It's the other way around. God is seeking after man. And man is nowhere to be found. See, sometimes we we think of this when we're explaining the gospel. We say, well, God is holy and he cannot be with sin. and, And so man is separated from God because God cannot be with sin. That is true. That is true. But but we leave out this little point. It's not like man is trying to beat down the door of heaven trying to get in. Man doesn't want to be with God. Man is afraid of God. Man is, man is ashamed of their sin. Man is living in their guilt, and they are afraid of God. Where once there was unhindered relationship, now man does not want to go to God. God is seeking after man, and man is nowhere to be found. That's why we read in Romans 3, there is none that seeks after God. No, not one. It's not as if man wants to get into heaven. No, man wants nothing to do with the presence of God. God wants us to see that he still desires a relationship with man. But it has been fractured, this relationship between he and Adam. He wants the reader to see that where once Adam would have enjoyed his presence, now he hides from it. So, so where are you is one of the saddest lines in all of scripture. Where are you? Number two, Genesis 3 details for us man's failed remedy for sin. You've got to see this. We see that sin brings separation from God and our relationship with God, but then we see, secondly, man's failed remedy for sin. God knows where Adam is. He calls out to Adam to give account of himself. Where are you, Adam? And this is an invitation for Adam to come and explain himself. Notice that Adam does not admit his sin, but merely mentions the effects of his sin. He says, I heard the sound of you and I was afraid of you because I was naked, so I hid myself. Adam's not forthright. He's hesitant. So the Lord God must inquire further. By the the way, kids, this is really important. Kids, listen. When your parents ask you a question, they already know the answer. Just be honest. I tell my kids that all the time. If I'm asking the question, that means I already know the answer. Just tell me the truth. Further lying is not going to help you. That's a little sidebar there, kids, trying to help you out. Yeah, you're welcome. 
the Lord God must inquire further. In Adam's admission of knowing that he is naked, he gives away his guilt. God then asks, how did you know that you were naked? Who told you this? Did you eat of the tree? Again, does God, does that, God not know this already? No, he's, he's wanting, he's inviting Adam to tell him the truth. Did you eat of that tree which I commanded you not to eat? Adam's response provides further insight into how man deals with his sin, man's remedy for their sin. How does man deal with the guilt of his sin? Well, we saw last week that man seeks to cover himself over, right? He self-atones. He covers himself over, provides his own covering. Man runs from God instead of to God. And when confronted with our guilt, man shifts the blame. That's our remedy. That's our remedy for guilt. We'll shift the blame. We've got to sit on this for a moment. Right? As, as, as a topic for a sermon, sin is not a popular one. I, I, would, I, would, I would tell you that, and, and I'm not, I have to be careful when I say this because I'm not trying to lift our church up or, or other churches like ours. There are a lot of churches in this world that refuse to talk about sin. Because they know that this topic will drive people away. And their goal is just to get people to come. But sin has to be dealt with before man can enjoy God's presence. It's not a, it's not a popular sermon topic. It's outdated, right? Antiquated, hellfire and brimstone, harshness, insensitivity is what we are accused of. Out of touch with what people really need. See, our society has erased sin, or, or rather, they have a definition of sin, but it's been modified. Biblically, we see that sin is rooted in our desire to be like God, our autonomy, our attempt to rule ourselves, our attempt, our attempt to be our own God. But our society has flipped that on its head so that there's no biblical sense of sin anymore in our culture. The only sin is to talk about sin. How harsh and unloving and unhelpful for mankind in his real need, his real problems. His real problems, we are told by our culture, stem from a failure to live as authentic self. If, if you want to find your best life, you've got to live as you were designed and made to live. Be true to yourself. Be authentic to yourself. And in order to do that, you need to throw off everyone who's telling you that you need to be something else. Throw off the constructs that have oppressed you. The voices of those in authority trying to hold you down. Our failure comes from a failure to be ourselves. We need to remove those who are seeking to control us in our thoughts about ourselves. So the world's answer to man's problem, then, is to blame it on something or someone else. You are keeping me from my self-realization. 
You are the one that has hurt me. See, we live in the age, this is very, very important. We live in the age of the victim. Everybody is told to think of themselves as being a victim, being hurt by other people. And that's exactly what we see here in Genesis 3, isn't it? Maybe Genesis 3 isn't as antiquated as all that. Maybe Genesis 3 is more timely than it's given credit for. See, Adam, his answer to God's questions is not to take the blame for his sin, not to own his sin, but to move it onto somebody else. He alienates himself from his wife by blaming her. And then ultimately, he alienates himself from God by putting the ultimate blame on God. Did you hear that? Do you see it there? This woman you gave me is my problem. (laughs) My circumstances, God, are your fault. You are the one who gave me this woman who led me astray. And unless you think Adam is the only one to shift the blame, this is exactly what Eve does as well. She refuses to own her sin. She blames it all on the devil. The devil made me do it. Do you hear that? How people say, well, the devil, the devil just kind of, he just kind of attacked me. The devil came out of nowhere. The devil made me do it. No, the devil doesn't make anybody do anything. So we got we to have right theology regarding Satan and the devil. The devil can't make you do anything. The devil doesn't have that kind of power. The devil's predictable and he's powerless. He can't make you do anything. She seeks to blame the voice. But at the end of it, and you see this, when I sin and when you sin, when we sin, there is only one person to blame. And that is myself. It's my fault. I did this. It's me. Can I ask you a very simple question? I think it's important to ask that here. Who, who do you blame your sin on? Who are you blaming for your sin, even right now in your life? Your marriage isn't what you want it to be. Your parenting isn't what you want it to be. Your life isn't what you want it to be. But whose fault is... Who, 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 are, you, who are you blaming See, this, this, is the, this is the, we all want to trumpet our own freedom. We all want to talk about our rights and our choices. It's my life. I'm my own person. I make my own decision until things go wrong and then it's someone else's fault. Someone else made me do this. I, I make all the good, good decisions, but when I make a bad decision, it was someone else doing it. It's like the person who says, I'm sorry I got upset, but I just didn't get a good night's sleep last night. Have you ever said that or something like that? I'm sorry, I just didn't get a good night's sleep. That's why I'm short. That's why I'm a little frustrated and angry today because I didn't sleep well. But whenever we do sleep well, right, we don't, we don't give that the credit for our good actions. Well, yeah, I'm really kind today because I slept well last night. No, that, that has to do with us because we're just good people. See, it doesn't work. So who do you blame? What do you blame? 
We want the credit for good, but the sin, that's not us. So whose fault is it? Is it your parents' fault? How you were raised? Is it your spouse's fault? And the fact that they don't give you what you need. I would, I would be able to give them what they need, but they don't give me what I need first. Maybe it's that diagnosis. Maybe it's the fact that you've been diagnosed and I, I just can't control myself. It's not my fault. You don't know what I've been through. My childhood was terrible. Or this is how God made me. Or who I've been made to be. Put it on God. Ultimately. No. When we are confronted with our sin, we must own it. Now, I, I've got to say this very quickly. There, there have been sins against you. Every single one of us, if we, if we were to be able to, to talk openly right here, and I would go around to each and every one of you, there have been people that have sinned against you. And their sin against you has impacted you. It has had terrible impact, horrific impact on you. And you have sinned against other people, and that sin has had horrible, terrible impact as well. See, we live in a sinful world where people sin against each other, and that sin has horrible impact. But someone's sin against you, I've got to say this, because I don't want you to leave hearing something else. People have sinned against you, and it is horrible. But someone's sin against you never justifies your sin. What am I saying? I'm saying that you and I, because we are following Christ, we can be godly even when someone sins against us. The sin of our parents does not define us. The sin of our spouse does not define us. We can be godly even when someone sins against us. In fact, that is when our godliness shines most brightly. When someone sins against us and we handle it in godliness and Christ-likeness, that is where the world sees who we are. And we're not like them. We don't handle people's sin against us the way they do. We are God's people. There's no one else to blame for our sin. No one makes you sin. It is your choice. And until you own your sin, this is the damaging part of it, until you own your sin, you're cutting yourself off from the only hope of salvation for your sin. Jesus came to save sinners, not victims. Jesus came to save sinners. And this is why the doctrine of justification by grace is the only answer for our sin. That's why we need justification by grace. If you will own your sin, then he offers you his righteousness. His payment for your sin is yours if you will own and admit your sin. If you refuse to admit your sin, then what you are actually saying is that you don't need his righteousness and thus... To you it will not be offered. 
I don't need your righteousness because I'm not guilty. Someone else's fault. Therefore, you will not be offered his righteousness because you believe you do not need it. And you will stand before God covered in your own sorry attempts to justify yourself before God. You will not enjoy his presence. But the sight of him in that day will be terrible for you. Do not stand before him in his presence trying to cover yourself with your own sorry excuse for a covering. Stand before him in the justification, the righteousness that he provides in Jesus Christ. And the only way to access that righteousness is by, to start by, be, by owning and blaming your sin on yourself and not on someone else. The path to freedom begins with admitting your sin. We see that sin separates us from God. We see, number two, man's failed remedy for sin. And we see, number three, the consequences of our sin. The consequences. While you can choose your sin, and you do, I do, while you can choose your sin, you don't get to choose the consequences for your sin. God chooses the consequences for your sin. And there are consequences for sin. We see these meted out here, starting in verse number 14. He begins with the serpent. He begins with the serpent and then goes to the woman and then will conclude with the man. And the man gets the largest part of the attention. Seeing where sin enters the world is through the man, Romans 5. To the serpent, the Lord God says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the Lord God first curses the serpent. And this is interesting. This is a little different than what you often hear when referring to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, important. Adam and Eve are not cursed. Can I get an amen from Katie Crombine? Amen. There you go. She teaches Old Testament. She said, Adam and Eve weren't cursed. That's right. Adam and Eve are not cursed. The serpent is said to be cursed here. And then down in verse number 17, the ground will be cursed because of Adam's sin. The serpent's connection to the ground signals his humiliation and pictures the serpent as unclean. There's a lot we could talk about here. But this unclean status, this humiliation, will extend also to the serpent's descendants. Now on the surface, on the surface, this passage explains to us the constant ongoing antagonistic relationship between snakes and humans. It does. I mean, I, I gotta tell you, this is one of those things. This is, one of, this is an excursus. If my daughter brings home a guy who likes to keep snakes in his bedroom, he's off the list. That guy has problems. I'm just saying, why would you ever keep a snake in your house? They're awful. Terrible. You shouldn't like snakes. So I don't like snakes. That's because they're cursed. (laughs) There you have it. But we know there's more going on here than just talking about snakes. Unless you think the sole reference is merely to snakes, it becomes obvious as we continue to read that the serpent is symbolic 
for sin, for death, and evil. The serpent was the instrument that Satan, the other voice uses, the opposing voice uses in the garden. And so the serpent then becomes the symbol for sin and evil and death. What we see here is that there will be an ongoing battle between the serpent, between sin and evil and death, and the seed of the woman, that is, mankind. There will be an ongoing battle between the serpent and all he stands for and mankind. And since this is, in fact, a curse upon the serpent, we are led to see that man will ultimately triumph over the serpent. You've got to see that there. Man will ultimately triumph over sin and death and evil. Right there in the midst of it, you see God's promise. The enmity of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is going to play itself out in an ongoing antagonistic relationship of their distinct offspring. Now, we, we will see this developed in chapter 4, in Genesis chapter 4 next week. We'll see this developed a little bit more as we talk about Cain. It's the, the parallel language between Cain and his cursing and the serpent and his cursing is, is un, you can't miss it. It's unmistakable. And so what we see is that Cain and his line, his, his line of descendants, are marked by the serpent and the serpent's voice. And there is another line, the line of Seth, that will be the godly line and will extend or, or bring that hope of restoration, that hope of triumph over sin and evil and death. And the rest of Genesis, and yeah, even the Bible, the rest of the Bible is about these two lines. The seed, the offspring, the line of the serpent, and the line of Seth. Through the line of Seth, as you will see in chapter 4, through the line of Seth, there will be this ongoing opposition, but through the line of Seth, there will be victory brought, there will be a triumph brought, and every page, every page, this is like this really dramatic, every page is this drama, unfolding drama, as, this, as the line of Cain tries to, tries to upend and, and keep from happening this promised line of Seth. And in the end, we see that the serpent will bite the heel. There will be a death blow struck on the heel of mankind, but in that bite, the serpent's head will be crushed once and for all. So here in Genesis 3.15, right, we could preach a whole sermon on this, one verse. Here in Genesis 3.15, we have our first promise of redemption. You want to know how good God is? You want to see how gracious God is? Even in the midst of him handing out consequence for sin, in the midst of him pronouncing curse for sin, there in the midst of the consequence for sin, he gives the promise of redemption. Salvation will come. Salvation from sin and death and hell, salvation will come from the seed of the woman who we discover through the storyline of Scripture is in fact Jesus. Jesus is the one who will die, but in his death will strike the ultimate death blow to the serpent. Genesis 3 explains to us 
our separation from God because of sin. It explains to us, it, it calls us out. It explains to us our own failed remedy for sin. It explains to us the consequence for sin. And part of this consequence is that man and woman whom God has created for his vision, his vision to be carried out in the earth, man and woman will not live as they should. Very quickly, the woman, the Lord God turns to her and tells her that there will be multiplied pain in her childbearing. Her role, right, she is given a womb, unapologetically, by the way, we are unapologetic in that. The woman has been designed with a womb. That womb is meant to carry forth life. That womb is what God has planned to bring life into the earth and multiply his image upon the earth. We're unapologetic in that. But because of sin, this womb that God has given, it will still, this is amazing, it will still bring forth children. Children are a blessing from the Lord. But in that blessing, there will be pain. In her role of bringing life to the earth, there will be the experience of great pain. And her relationship with her husband that is meant to be harmonious, it will instead be fraught with tension. You want to see what happened to the first marriage? Look at it there. The marriage made in heaven that God designed. You want to see what happened to that marriage? Maybe you think that that God, he designed your marriage, right? God put you together. Well, look at what happens to Adam and Eve. The woman's desire, because of sin, the woman's desire will be contrary to her husband. Maybe, maybe you're reading that, you're like, I thought I was the only one. I thought my marriage was the only one like that. No, every marriage is like that. See, this is important. When you look around and say, well, those people have a perfect marriage, and those people have a perfect marriage, and those, nobody has a perfect marriage. This is what all of us experience. This explains all of us. The woman's desire will be contrary to her husband. The same language will again be picked up in chapter 4. We'll look at that next week in Cain's relationship to sin. Her desire is contrary to her husband, and her husband now must rule over her. The woman will now be against her husband and seek to oppose him, and the man will now rule or subjugate her and her contrariness. This is, this is important. We don't have time to flesh all of this out. But this tells us why man and woman are in the fractured relationship that they are. This is not telling us that male headship is, is part of the fall. Right? We see in Genesis 2 that male headship is not part of the fall. Male headship is not the result of the fall. Adam was given authority. Adam was given responsibility that was unique and distinct from the woman's. Male headship is not a result of the fall, but its distortion, its opposition, and its abuse is a result of the fall. Male headship is good. Authority is good, as God has created it. That's, this is, that's revelatory. Them's fighting words, by the way, with a lot of people. Authority is good. It's designed to be good. And male headship is good. It's designed to be good. But this good design is opposed by those who are meant to benefit from it. And in turn, the result will be a ruling 
a ruling of men over women that was not part of the original design. And we see this play itself out through history as we've seen male-driven cultures and societies that mistreat and abuse women. This is not how God has designed his good world to work. This is because of sin. Because of sin, there is a never-ending list of abuses and injustices worked against women. That's not our imagination. That is the reality of it. But the wrong conclusion is to say that male headship is the problem. No, no, sin is the problem. And what is done to God's good design. Sin, therefore, has had disastrous results for roles of men and women. The two that were designed to complement one another, the two that were intended to be one flesh, instead will tear each other apart. That's what sin has done. And this is what Christ This is what Christ does when Christ comes into a marriage, when Christ comes into your life, and we stop blaming our sin on someone else, and we seek to point each other to Christ. He can take these roles, and he can take this marriage, and he can actually make it honoring to God once again. That's what he does. But it's not going to be accomplished by believing the world's lies about man and woman and marriage and headship and all those things. Those are lies that need to be rejected. Speaking of man, he turns his attention now to man, and the length of the consequence, right, shows us that Adam bears the ultimate responsibility. He's the one that didn't protect. He's the one that didn't nurture. He's the one that didn't provide. He's the one that didn't stomp on the serpent's head. Because you listened to the voice of your wife, Adam, because you obeyed your wife instead of me and ate what I command you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. Now you will eat by the sweat of your brow, Again, it tells us work is not a result of the fall. Painful work is a result of the fall. Work is good. We were made for it, men. Just like the pain that accompanies the role of the woman in bringing forth life, now pain will accompany the role of the man to work. Ultimately, the man, and by implication, mankind, you see this there, will return to the dust from which he was taken. We see that the consequence of sin is death. I've, I've done a lot of funerals. And I, I can tell you, as I stand at a funeral, every time I stand at a funeral, every time I stand at a memorial service, I hate death even more. I hate death. But, but we've got to realize death is not what God designed. Death is what sin has brought So whenever we stand at a memorial service, we don't point the finger at God and say, God, how could you bring this upon us? No, no, no. Man, sin has brought this upon ourselves. And every death is a reminder of the consequence of sin. Sin brings death. Just like God said it would. But the inevitable death that sin brings seems to contradict what God said, right? God says, in that day you eat, you will die. The return to dust is not until a day farther in the future. So this seems to be a problem for us as we consider this passage until we look at the next scene. Look at verses 22 through 24. 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said... 
Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now let us, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. The death that happened in that day is man's exile from God's presence. The exile from God's presence and the forever life that would be experienced in God's presence. So this separation from God's life-giving presence is death. Physical death then is not pictured as the severest punishment of sin. Physical death isn't our greatest fear. What's our greatest fear? It's not physical death. So how many people, how many people spend so much of their life in angst about keeping us ourselves alive, right? Keeping anything bad from happening to your kids. What's the worst thing that can happen to your kids? Separation from God is the worst thing that can happen for your kids. Our attention, our urgency needs to be placed on that. Not just on physical death. Physical death is just a consequence of spiritual death. Our greatest fear is to be separated from God. And this is how every person enters the world. We are born in death. You and I were born dead in our trespasses and sins. This is our state. This is our operating principle once again. We are walking dead, right? We're estranged from God, corrupt in our desires, following the course of this world, willfully following the deceptions of the serpent, the spirit that is now at work in all the descendants of Adam. We live every day in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and are under the constant awareness of God's coming wrath and judgment. This is our state. And it forces the question, who will deliver us from this death? Who can deliver us from the body of this death? Is there any way to escape our death and our separation from God? Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Most powerful Ephesians 2 recounting of God's rich mercy and great love, his goodness and grace. And while Ephesians 2 and numerous other places in the New Testament are explicit in this uncovering, this, this grace that he gives, this uncovering of his goodness and grace to show us, to manifest to us his goodness and grace. Though Ephesians 2 is explicit, we can see it already in Genesis 3. Will you consider with me for just a moment the picture of the Lord God in Genesis 3? First, consider his name. Even in the face of Adam's sin, the author continues to use the covenant name of God. God is faithful. He will keep his promise. He will continue in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yahweh, the Lord. Secondly, consider this. 
the Lord's, the Lord God's gentleness in dealing with fallen Adam and Eve. He entreats them. He invites them. He then, amazing, he provides a covering for their nakedness. In their nakedness and inability to cover their shame, God provides for them a covering. Do you see, a good, do you see his goodness? He doesn't leave them in their naked state. He covers them. And then, and then, don't miss this, there's the explicit motivation for the exile. I'm sure you haven't seen this before. Maybe you have. Look at what it says. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Do you see the explicit motivation there for the exile? Lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree and live forever. Do you only hear in that judgment? Do you only hear judgment in that? There's indeed judgment in that. Exile is the result of sin. But did you hear also the note of salvation in that? Man was not intended to live forever in this awful and sinful state. Have you ever considered the people that want to find the fountain of youth or the holy grail, right? What foolishness. Do you really want this condition forever? Do you really want to live in this state forever? God says, no, you will not live forever in this state. You will not live forever in this awful and terrible state. But in order to keep man from living forever in this terrible state, he separates them from the tree of life. We were intended for life. That's why everybody wants to find the fountain of youth. We were intended for life, for forever life, but we were not intended for forever sinful state. God's exile of Adam and Eve out of, out of his presence, his exile out of his presence is death, but is also the avenue that God will use to bring true life as it is meant to be. John 17 details this for us as God sends his son from his presence to come and bring to us eternal life. And what does he say is eternal life? To know God, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. He paves the way for the promise of Genesis 3.15 to come to pass. By bringing judgment of death, he secures the hope of still attaining eternal life. To secure the path to life, the Lord God plants a cherubim, plants the cherubim there to guard the entrance into the presence of God. The entrance is facing east, right? This will be significant as we, conti- significant as we continue to read. To go east in the biblical storyline, maybe you've never seen this before, to go east in the biblical storyline is to go away from God's presence. Therefore, the tabernacle and the temple always faces east so that when you enter it, you're pictured as leaving sin and leaving death and entering into life, going to God in his presence. The Lord God has sent a mediator, Jesus Christ, to bring us back from the east to bring us once again into his presence. He becomes the way, the truth, and the life.
So what are we to do with sin? We see Genesis 3 explains to us its penalty, separation, explains to us why we can't live with one another without killing each other, explains everything to us of who we are, and it explains, it points to the mercy and grace that God will supply, the salvation he will bring from death. Can I, just, can I just challenge you this morning? All of you are dealing, all of us today are dealing with sin. Do you want life? Do you want life, eternal life? It starts by exposing your sin, admitting it, owning it, taking the guilt upon yourself. You are indeed the guilty party. But then in your guilt, go to God. Go to God, and instead of wrath, what you will find is that God has provided for your sin. God has provided the salvation that you need. He has accomplished in his son the death and resurrection of his son, the salvation for and from your sin. Receive his grace his forgiveness. Stop trying to justify yourself in the sight of God. In fact, the worse you are, the more guilt you can take upon yourself and see truthfully about yourself, the better. Because he has grace for it all. Where sin abounded, grace does much more abound. Take it to him. Stop trying to justify yourself and receive his justification accomplished through Jesus Christ and then live. Live in his grace and goodness. Live in the truth of his word, not to earn his salvation, but because he has given it freely. We sang this song just a minute ago. I'm just bringing out some excerpts from that song. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. I cannot cause my soul to live, but Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. I hope and pray that that is your testimony this morning, that you can sing that song and know that it is true. He has been merciful, merciful in Christ alone. Father, thank you for Genesis 3, thank you for its explanatory power. Thank you that it gives us the answers we need to understand who we really are. God, keep us from the deception of our age. Keep us from finding our answers in therapy or in blame shifting. Help, help us to go to the truth and, and take the blame for our sin and see that in our guilt and in the consequences for our sin, you have provided a savior. You have provided a savior 
from our sin, from our guilt and the death that it brings, but only if we will first admit our sin and turn from it. I pray that you would bring salvation to the hearers this morning. And for those of us who know your salvation, that you would remind us of the salvation you've given us and that we would live in your goodness and grace. We would live in the power and clarity of your word, not to earn your salvation, but because we've been given it freely, that we would be your people living in your goodness and grace in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships with one another that we would reflect you and your goodness and grace, your salvation in Christ, in Christ alone. We thank you for all that you've done and praise you. In your name we pray, amen.